Smartcast. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Are you ready to write? Do you want to learn what it takes to create a writing career? Then tune in and take notes because on Simply Write, we talk about the writer's craft and the qualities and quirks of living a writer's life. Let's go. Hello and welcome to Simply Write with Polly. And today we're talking about writing from real life. How can we use our career expertise and our personal experiences and passions to create a writing career? Today, we're going to talk through this idea with author Alice Henderson. Welcome, Alice. Thank you so much, Polly. I'm pleased to be here. Well, we're happy to have you here. You are a dedicated wildlife researcher who uses a variety of methods, including bioacoustic studies. So that's going to be one of my first questions. What the (laughs) heck is that? But she uses her knowledge to survey animal species, improve habitat, design wildlife corridors. And she's also a writer who writes thrillers and science fiction and comics and stories and TV tie-ins and video games. Alice, you're doing a little bit of everything. She is also the author of a series, including A Solitude of Wolverines and Voracious. Alice, what is bioacoustic studies? Did I say that right? You sure did. Uh, Bioacoustics is fascinating. So it's a way to study wildlife that's very non-invasive, which is great. So in my own uh, studies, what I do is I put out these recorders and I'll have in the field, out in the wild, and I'll have uh, one mic that records audible sounds like bats, or I'm sorry, audible sounds like birds and amphibians and mammals, like maybe there's wolves howling. And then I have another microphone that records ultrasonically. So that I use to record bats. So I'll set these recorders out and I'll set them to record for um, days or even weeks at a time. And then I can withdraw from the scene, which is great because then animals go about their regular routines. And then I come back and I retrieve the recordings and then I look at them. And usually I'm, even though they're audio recordings, I'm usually looking at them visually. Um, I have software that shows what the spectrograms look like. So I can scan through them and I see like different songbirds singing and I can identify species this way, which is really cool. And bats, of course, I have to look at visually because we can't hear them. (laughs) What is it called? Ectral? What are they? What are the bats chirping sound? Echolocation. Echolocation. Cool, Polly, especially here in North America. Every species of bat in North America has its own echolocation pulse, if you will. So when you look at these calls, um, visually, you see that like myotis bats have a different slope to their calls, for example, from other wow. bigger bats. And you can tell species apart by, say, like bigger bats. Um, all bats um, echolocate on the downsweep of their wings. So they send out this really loud pulse. So if there's a lot of time between a pulse, that means it's a bigger bat that's taking more time to flap its wings. And if the pulses are closer together, it's probably a little littler bat. Um, but it's just, they're just fascinating. That is, that whole thing is fascinating. So listening, looking at these so-called sonograms and listening to these sounds, you can tell what species are in the area when they're migrating, when they're moving through all that kind of stuff. 
Exactly right. So if I put the recorders out at different times of the year, for example, I can see when migratory bats and birds are moving through the area. And if you get enough recordings over enough years, you can even um, run algorithms to see what the biodiversity is like in that area. If there's more birds and it's increasing, or if there's fewer sounds in the forest and it's decreasing, and then you can look to see what you can do to improve habitat for different species. Okay, well, I want to do a whole nother conversation about this because <laughs> I'm totally fascinated. And and like I said, this is, I think, why I came to writing in the first place, aside from my love of office supplies, because I really like <laughs> to hear what people are into. You know, I learn so much when I'm writing my own stories, fiction or not. I do a lot of research for my other work, too. But before I launch full scale into it, we start every show with something we call the dailies. What does a regular day look like for you, a wildlife biologist who also is a writer? Well, I, my main day job is actually writing. Um, that's at least what I do every day because my wildlife work is often project-based. So day to day I get up and I do the writing, but then sometimes I'm out in the field for months um, at these chunks of time. And a lot of them are seasonal. Um, for example, I don't do bats in the winter but I will go out and look uh, for prints in the snow for wolverines in the winter. So a lot of it's project-based, well, all of it's project-based, which is great. And I also do a lot of computer work for wildlife. Um, for example, designing wildlife quarters is something I'm just doing from home. Um, I don't have to be on the field to do that. So it's, it's really a mix every day. Some days I might just be working on my fiction. And then when I finish that, I'll go and uh, design a wildlife corridor. <laughs> um, and then other times I'm out in the middle of nowhere. And during the day, that's when I'm setting out these recorders or tracking wildlife in the field. And then I'm writing at night when I come back to camp. So it's a nice variety. And the wildlife works so analytical and the creative writing is so creative that it doesn't really conflict with each other. They feed in nicely and using different parts of my brain. Yeah, that's an interesting balance. So when you're out working on a project or in the field, you said when you come back to camp. So are you actually camping part of this time and then riding at night in your in your camp or your tent or wherever? Exactly. So um, I actually ride at night even if I'm home. Okay. <laughs> so okay. it's not that it's not a, a, that huge of a change. But um, yes, exactly. So I'll and sometimes I'm even, which is the best, camped in the very spot where these wildlife biologist thrillers are taking place. So then I can really steep in the environment and listen to all the bird song around me and really bring that area to life in the books. So I just love that. And going back to camp at night and everything's quiet and you know you just write there. And sometimes it's freezing cold and um, I have to I write on a little portable word processor an alpha smart and I have to tuck it into the sleeping bag with me. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it warm. Which is a challenge sometimes because I can't see the screen and I'm always afraid I've somehow pressed the power off button and <laughs> the way and nothing's being recorded. <laughs> yeah, I haven't had that problem with needing to stuff a machine under my uh, pillow at <laughs> night. So I'm I'm good with the comfort of the couch or the chair, you know. <laughs> and those are the dailies. All right, Alice, I want to get into it. What came first, the writing or the biology? The writing. Um, well, actually, when I was turned six is the year both fascinations um, came to me. My dad, he had this old uh, Underwood manual typewriter, and he upgraded. <laughs> he was a writer as well. And he upgraded to an electric typewriter and gave me his 
portable. So that's when I really started writing earnest and write short stories. And, um, and then that same year was when I really got into wildlife and I learned about extinction and really wanted to devote my life to doing something to help wildlife. Um, I do all kinds of crazy stuff as a six-year-old since I couldn't run off and join the Greenpeace anti-whaling ships. I, <laughs> <laughs> I would like go door to door and bug my neighbors to buy coffee from me or I'd make little trinkets and I'd sell them to my neighbors and then I would donate the money to wildlife nonprofits and uh, circulate petitions and that sort of thing. And since I'm always split down the middle between the arts and the sciences, I studied both writing and then I would do study biogeography and field zoology and things like that. For both my undergrad and grad, I was doing both <laughs> the arts and the sciences. Do you ever feel too immersed in the wildlife world? Are there ever times when you're feeling defeated or frustrated at that, what you're seeing from, from the animals, and you come back and you're like, man, now I have to deal with this too? Or is, does one offset the other? Do you feel like you have a different voice through your writing to discuss some of these themes and and the things that might be troubling that's such a good question polly and i i do feel of course down and hopeless at times with wildlife and 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 how dire things are looking and the great thing about especially the series i'm writing right now about the wildlife biologists is i can take those feelings of like oh my gosh you know what are we going to do to make this better for these species this is terrible and i can channel that into my writing and and suggest things. This is how we can help these species. And, you know, I do it in a, in a suspenseful tale, you know, so hopefully people are reading it for the suspense and action and so on, but then learning about these species on the side and the plights that they're facing. And I feel like it's a great healing process to be able to write about um, this often dark uh, and dire situations that I deal with in the wildlife world. Do you come to your books with a theme? I mean, each of them have the name, many of them have a name of the animals, especially in your series, and they're rooted in, in location. Do you come to the book knowing the theme you want to cover or the message you want to convey? Or does that evolve as you root yourself in a certain setting and with a certain animal? And, and it, I, It's kind of a combo of both. I knew that I wanted to pick these specific species because um, they're in they're in a really bad decline. Mm -hmm. So that's how first I choose the species and then that dictates the setting. And, um, and then that setting often dictates how the action is going to take place. If it's in a mountainous area with a lot of snow, then that'll dictate sort of what's possible and what can she do and what kinds of um, dangerous situations can my protagonist get into. And then, you know, if it's in a desert setting, then that's a whole different kind of environment and situations. She could be in, you know, dehydration and, things and um and so with each book i wanted to do um a, a, the name of the animal and then its group name so that mm. that would be what would tie these books together um with the titles at least and and i quickly learned that a lot of these animals have no group name the the wolverine which is what my first um mm -hmm. biologist thriller is about um has no group name i mean they're so solitary so I've had to make up appropriate group names for some That's of these interesting. animals, like a solitude of wolverines because they're always by themselves, uh, unless they have kids. And and then same with polar bears. There's a group name for bears, um, but not specific kinds of bears. So made up a, a blizzard of polar bears for that one. And once again with caribou, um, there's a group name for deer, you know, a herd of deer, but not specifically for caribou. And because it's so <laughs> elusive, 
Um, they're often called the gray ghost of the forest. So I chose a ghost of caribou for that one. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I wondered about the solitude of wolverines because I didn't know that about wolverines. And I think that's part of the fun of reading books like this because you get wrapped up in the story for sure. But part of the value is that we're also learning to think about things in a different way, learning about our environment in a different way, whether it's a social human environment or a natural environment. So uh, I, do you, you said you bring in the animal, the species that, that you know, you're working with or that you're concerned about or thinking about. Um, and many of these places where you find the species are pretty creepy. <laughs> I mean, I mean, they are. They're, you're out there in the woods. You're pretty isolated. You're pretty alone. It's dark and cold sometimes, especially in the snow. Does the setting then in the stories, do you think of that as a character? Do you think of the animals as a character within your stories? Or are you always thinking from the protagonist, the human protagonist angle? I'm more, um, first I usually come up with my plots and then I come up with uh, the character, like what kind of character would be most challenged by this plot or and the setting, you're so right. In fact, when I got the idea to write this series, um, I was out in the middle of nowhere in Montana, um, setting up recorders to hopefully get wolves and some remote cameras to hopefully get some wolverines. And I thought, wow, this, this is so remote and this would be a great location for a thriller. It's so isolated. And, um, and so that was how that very same night I went back to camp and was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to do this and the protagonist should be a wildlife biologist, you know, so I can address these uh, wildlife themes. And I think that each setting and offers just such a different um, environment and, and, and the isolation of it, that that really lent to plotting these books out and then figuring out from there, okay, I'm, she's out in the middle of nowhere in, in the snowy mountains of Montana, which is where the first book takes place, what could happen? And then I go from there. And then of course the animal is dictating where that location is gonna to be to begin with. And also the way that you have to track different animals dictates the suspense mm. in the book. If she's tracking them on foot or if she's setting up remote cameras, um, you know, she could run across different things as she's different dangerous situations as she's hiking. Um, or capturing mysterious things on her remote cameras. So it really was just such a world of possibility. Do you think your two jobs enhance each other? Do you, are there things that show up in your writing that pique your interest professionally as a biologist? Are there things that show up in the field that you make a note of and say, oh, okay, I'm going to look at it this way in the book? Definitely all the time. I mean, I'm always... Um, I went on this epic cross-country trip doing species presence surveys in a bunch of different wildlife sanctuaries all over the country. And every different sanctuary was like presented its own unique problems and um, situations and awesome wildlife. So I was constantly thinking, oh, this would be you know creepy to have in a book, or this would be really suspenseful, or this aspect of this animal is really neat. And I really try to bring the entire environment and not just the animal I'm focusing on, but other wildlife that shares that biosphere with them and, um, and bring the whole environment together in a really vivid way in the books. Well, I think it works in your in your books. I really I really like I'm learning a lot. It's keeping I'm riveted. And simply being out in any isolated environment is is great for a thriller, right? Right. You, you got the <laughs> right. components right there. You got a person out there by themselves. There's going to be trouble. 
many thriller writers are putting in these bigger social themes. There's, it, it seems like the story is launching a way into these bigger discussions that we need to have. Did you ever consider writing literary fiction or was it always a thriller? Did you want to convey certain things before you even started writing? So this was the mechanism or, or did you not think about it that hard? I did think about it that hard and I've written in a lot of genres and thrillers are what I'd love to read the most. And I was definitely wanting to shed light <clears throat> on these species when I was at sort of at this crossroads with my writing where I just finished a science fiction trilogy and when I got this idea on the field, when I was out there with the wolves and I thought, why don't I write a thriller? I mean, that's what I love to read the most. And I've often thought, you know, if I wrote a nonfiction book about these species, probably not that many people would even find it or read it. And if they did, it would be people that already were familiar with the situation with these species and what they're facing and what we can do to help them. But if I wrote a thriller, I thought then maybe people would pick it up for, you know, to be entertained in the suspense and action and fight scenes and then be like, oh, I didn't know this about wolverines. And in the back of each book, I have a section where readers can learn more about the species and uh, ways that they can help the species, including even like hands-on volunteer opportunities and things like that. So I definitely had this goal in mind when I set out to write this, that I wanted to help wildlife and address this issue in a in a hopeful way because I think so much of what we're hearing about climate change and species extinction is so dark and dire that I think a lot of people are tuning out. And I really wanted to say, hey, you know, the situation is not hopeless. Here's what we can do, and you know, hopefully get people charged up to take some kind of action. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think it is overwhelming in many ways for people like me who don't have a lot of experience to know how to help, to know what to do, right? But the story then is gonna drag us in. You're right, I think. I think that's a smart professional move too. And as writers, the reality is if we want our stuff to be read, we've it's gotta be published, it's gotta be publishable. Otherwise, no eyes are gonna get to it and then we're not able to write a whole lot because we have to pay the bills the other ways too. <laughs> but with nonfiction, it, it would be more of a niche market. That doesn't mean people wouldn't read it, but yes, it draws a different audience. Whereas people will just want a good thriller, they might pick up Wolverines, right? And and be pulled into this whole other theme that they hadn't thought about yet, which is, I love I love thrillers. And so it doesn't matter to me if the story is good, I'm going to pick it up. And if I learn something along the way, then it's more motivating, exciting to me, I think, as a reader. Definitely. And I think, you know, with climate change and with uh, species extinction, we need a large group of people to, you know, make our voices heard and write letters and, um, you know, do clean beach days and things like that instead of a small group of people. So really reaching that larger audience was really important to me. I think that's what writing should do. I mean, I, I, I really do believe books will change the world. And if we, the more we have on any topic, the more available they are, the uh, more we pull people in and connect with each other on those big issues. So I want to talk more about that. I want to talk about craft and the differences between crafting science fiction and thrillers and all the other things you're doing we're going to take a short break on simply write with polly and when we come back here on the creators network of electrocast we're going to have more with alice henderson life is hard but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier hi my name is blue Toulousma. 
I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanize with Blue Musma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on Electricast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. Welcome back. You're listening to Simply Right with Polly, and we have thriller, author, and wildlife biologist Alice Henderson here. And before we went to break, we were talking about how to use mystery and thriller books and books in general to convey these larger themes to to inform people and and get people excited not only about the issues at hand but the stories as well because we're, we're a you know a world of storytellers and we are people who enjoy stories so it's a powerful way to convey a message as long as you do it well right alice i mean there are <laughs> techniques you can't just go off talking about the wolverines for 30 pages you're gonna have to tie in a plot and these other things when you're doing let's get into craft a little bit when you're doing all these different things science fiction tv tie-ins and video games are there any components that follow from one genre to another that make a good piece of writing that you think we need to incorporate in these stories for me personally um i love suspense and even if i'm writing and say horror or sci-fi I'll still want that element of suspense and to keep the reader turning the pages. So that's my favorite thing to write action scenes, suspense, and placing all those little seeds as you go along, you know, before the mystery is revealed um, or the climax happens. So I love that. And I think you're absolutely right that, you know, when crafting a thriller, especially that's going to have a, a pace, it has to be fast paced. And you don't want then, like you said, 30 pages about <laughs> the biology of the Wolverine. So that's one real challenge I've found in writing the series is putting these cool little facts in about Wolverines without bogging the narrative down. So that's, that's quite a task is figuring out, okay, this is a good little moment here where she's, you know, standing out on the cliff and reflecting on the Wolverine and I can put some cool facts in there. Yeah, so, and and I think it's just cool that somebody's standing out on a cliff reflecting on the Wolverines. <laughs> Period. I think that's awesome. It makes me want to just jump right into the world. Like uh, it, it. You know, if you get a book with a strong setting, um, it it really can suspend our you know our link to the real world. I think, and I can drop right in, which I I love. Is there a way you? do that to keep the pacing going or to keep that tension um, ramped up? I do. I try to, you need, the reader needs to rest sometimes. So I really try to structure the books where there'll be a lot of suspense and then the reader gets a little break and then more suspense and then a little break. And in each of my, these wildlife biologist thrillers of which I'm just turning the fourth, I try to have something a little different than I haven't done before, where the last chunk of the book, like the last sometimes third of the book is one sustained suspense scene. Mm. So it's just like racing toward the finish. And um, I love that, it's, especially as I'm writing and because suspense and action are my favorite thing. I know when I get to that point, I'm like, yes, this is the part where I can just speed on toward the end and all this action is going to happen. And, and um, I just love that. So 
I try to structure it there. It's like peak valley, peak valley, and then just like peak. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a good image to have, really, though, because you're right. The reader needs to rest and to kind of simulate what we've just learned and what we've exactly. just picked up. Right. I um. Do you ever act out these? You know, I I'm writing. I, I write nonfiction, and I'm working on a fiction piece right now. And I find myself saying, "Huh, what would that expression be?" And then I'll start making these faces, or I'll start moving my body. Do you put yourself back in that place where your protagonist is, and do you move, or do you just have it so tight in your head that you don't have to do any things like any wacky things like I do on my end? I do. Um... I, I'll, I'll say dialogue out loud sometimes. Like I'll have these conversations with myself. And then with the fight scenes, um, my protagonist knows the martial art Jeet Kune Do, which I also studied. And so <laughs> those I will, you know, be like a total goofball. I'll get up and act out. And would this move work? And with that, and she needs to disarm this guy. <laughs> I'll start acting out the fighting scene just to be sure it, it works, you know, in real life and then on paper. Yeah. Yeah. Did you write with a market in mind when you started working on the thrillers? Did you think, oh, this is a good uh, niche with my expertise and this fits into my interest area and there's not many of these out there. Maybe this can work. Or did you write what you wanted to write and then find the market to accommodate it? It was a little of both. Um, I definitely wrote what I wanted to write. In fact, I feel like this series is like my dream series to write. I oh, just fantastic. Love I love that I can write thrillers that are like shedding light on wildlife which I feel so passionately about but um I did notice that a lot of thrillers set in the wild um have protagonists who are hunters and so I thought there's got to be readers out there who want to want to read about wildlife and they want to um you know have a suspenseful tale told but they don't want to have to sit through scenes where the protagonist is like shooting a pronghorn antelope and, and butchering it. Um, <laughs> right. so there's gotta be other readers like me who just want to delve in the, in like the amazingness of nature and the magic of nature and these environments and deal with wildlife in a way that isn't combative, if you will. Um, and where someone's helping the wildlife. So I thought there might be a niche here. And, uh, and then it just happened to be exactly what I wanted to write. So it, it really dovetailed in beautifully. I, and I think that's awesome as, you know, when we're talking to people who are entering writing for the first time or aspire to be full-time writers, that's something to keep in mind. Like, what do you bring to it? What do you care about? Because you have to live with these characters and these ideas for a long time. And if you're writing strictly for market, um, that doesn't work for me. And, and I've not done that in fiction. I've done that in nonfiction before. And it's for me, it's a recipe for burnout. If, it, you know, the times I was doing articles because there was a client or something that needed to happen. Now, it did help pay the bills. And sometimes you got to make those decisions. But dang, my tolerance for that, when when I have to contrive my interests in a different way, where I'm working on something that I'm not passionate about, it takes a lot more to do that kind of work, I think, as a writer. I agree. And I think if you're thinking, well, I want to write something that I can sell that's popular, what's popular now, and you look around and you say, oh, okay, I'm going to write a vampire novel, and maybe that's not really what you're into. Also, if if that subject is so proliferating in the market, it's probably oversaturated already, and you think about, if I write this book now, it might not get published for two years. I mean, even if a publisher picks it up right away, and by then, the market could really be saturated with that subject matter, or even may have crashed with that subject matter. So, 
if you find something that you love and you feel passionate about and you want to write about, there's a chance that there's other people out there who want to read that and they're hungry for that. And they don't have that when they look around in the bookstore, they say, I want this kind of book and it's just not available. So I say, like, I agree, Polly, you know, follow that passion and write something that you're going to be happy sticking with for a long time. Yeah. There are universal stories out there and we want to read them all. And it's our unique perspective and experience and education and interest that makes it worth reading to begin with. So you got to bring that to your stories. And I, I, I love that you've done that. I'm glad you're having a good time writing it because uh, I think it could go on for a while. So now you've also written a ton of other stuff, science fiction, video games. How has that all happened? Do you, do you go to other things that interest you? Do people know you're a writer and they call you up and say, Hey, do this or how does that work? It was an interesting journey uh, getting where I am. Um, I had, like I said, started writing young and I wrote my first novel in middle school, which was, is terrible. <laughs> and another one in high school. We've all got to like, have one terrible one. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, um, and I was submitting, but wasn't having much luck. And then I got a job working for George Lucas. Um, and I started writing for these Star Wars video games on the side, like writing strategy guides and things like that for these Star Wars games. And once I had those Star Wars credits, mm. it was like a door just open. And um, I talked to another writer um, who gave who she was writing Buffy the Vampire Slayer tie-in novels. <laughs> and I asked her, how did you get into that? And, you know, just walked up to her at a conference. I didn't know her. She was so nice. Um, Von Navarro. And she told me how she'd gotten into it. And I wrote her editor and started pitching Buffy ideas. And and then they accepted that. And then I wrote another Buffy book. Cool. So now I had these three, I had two media tie-in novels published, but still not any of my original work because I had the Star Wars stuff, the Buffy stuff. And then I started submitting my original work, uh, meaning that I own the copyright and not George Lucas. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, it, and it was just, Suddenly things just started to happen. Um, I sold Voracious, which is a horror novel set in Glacier National Park uh, about a creature. It's creature horror. Which I and love Glacier and I'm that's on my list because I love <laughs> there. I could just imagine a horror novel there. I loved that. I wrote it there. And then ironically, when my editor sent it back for me to go over and revise, I was camped there again. So ah. there he was in my tent uh, <laughs> writing about this monster. He's a very intelligent creepy monster and I was just sure he was like outside the tent. I know I was gonna ask if you freak yourself out in <laughs> these places. <laughs> Maybe he wasn't happy with how I was portraying him in the book and <laughs> you know, I was lurking outside there. I could just totally psych myself out. Um and then I the more I got into doing uh, wildlife work and passionate about climate change and things like that, I thought I want to start addressing this stuff in my work. And with the science fiction trilogy I wrote, which starts with the book Shattered Roads, um, it's what you call cli-fi, you know, that. Oh, no. Um, and I took, I studied climatology as a grad student and I just projected if we stay as business as usual where we are now, what is it going to look like, you know, years from now? What is the planet going to look like and biodiversity? And and then, of course, I had to set it in a, you know, an action-packed, suspenseful uh, kind of setting because I love that. So that's what that one was about. And then, like I said, that day out just putting out recorders hoping to get wolves I thought why aren't I writing about this you know <laughs> this yeah. is fantastic 
I love that though. I, I love that you were curious about something and you wanted to write. So you, you pitched it yourself and reached out to the editor and went to the convention and, and were bold enough to go talk because the writers that I've asked for help or asked for information about, they've been always totally cool. I don't think of it in comp and when somebody asks me, I'll, I'll help them. I don't think of it in terms of competition. It's if you can do a better job than me, go do it. Or if we can do an equal job, you know, I, Go, go get that job. I, I think we need to help each other. I think that's the way the market works for all of us. I agree. And I think that plays into what we were saying earlier is that what they write is going to be different and it's going to bring fresh voice and, and it's all just going to enrich the genre that you're writing in. And so the more writers contributing all their unique viewpoints, the more alive that's going to stay and the more readers are going to be attracted. So I think it's very important. Alice Henderson, what is in your desk? What do you need to have around you when you're working? Well, the most important thing for me is my little Alpha Smart portable word processor. Um, and I do, I write at night. I write in the middle of the night, actually. I'm very nocturnal. <laughs> and so I'll write in the dark on my little portable word processor. And thankfully, keyboards have that little tick mark, you know, on the F and the J. So you know where your fingers are in the dark. Something about that I can really steep into the environment. And then in the morning I get up, well, in the afternoon, because <laughs> um, I get up and I download what I've written onto my Mac and, uh, and then edit it. So that's my alpha smart is where it's at because it only weighs a pound. It runs like 700 hours on three AA batteries. I can just stick that thing in my backpack out in the field, right wherever. Um, it automatically turns on, automatically saves. There's no boot up time. So if I have an idea, no matter where I am, boom, there's this little guy I could write on. That's cool. Does it have a little uh, screen then that you can, but you can't see it in the dark. You don't turn on lantern on or anything for yourself. No campfire out there. I will, uh, it does have a little screen and you can adjust the font size. Usually you're only looking at like four lines and it looks like a calculator display. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so I've seen those, those look pretty cool. They're awesome, oh my gosh. And, but I do, because I've um, been typing and like the battery has died or um, like I said, I accidentally pressed the off button or maybe um, it'll, sometimes it'll ask you a question like, do you wanna use, it has other, applications on it like a calculator and stuff so sometimes it'll say do you want to use a word processor and I won't realize it's asked me that and I'll be typing away oh. not recording <laughs> anything so I will flip on my flashlight occasionally and just be sure okay it's cool it's recording what I'm writing um, but those snuff ups are, are very rare um, on this little guy I just love I appreciate the work you're doing I'm going to follow you now you have another book coming out you said Alice I do the fourth book in the Alex Carter Wildlife Biologist series um, will be out in early 2024. Okay. It's called A Prowl of Jaguars. And it's about jaguars, obviously, and it's set in New Mexico. Now they're elusive too. Very. We have Wait, just a handful left in the United States. I was going to say we have jaguars in New Mexico. Okay. I'm already thinking about the next. Hurry up. Get it up. <laughs> I'm already thinking about it. Where can we follow you and find more of your work? I'm on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And if you go to alicehenderson.com, um, I have my, my books are up there, but also you can subscribe to my newsletter, which I put out. And that is chock full of interesting wildlife facts and volunteer opportunities and publishing news and just neat wildlife stuff.
I'm Polly. You can find me at pollycampbell.com or become part of our community at simplywrite.substack.com where we go more in depth with authors and tip sheets and all things writing because it's what I'm interested in too. So you can join me there and uh, follow me on socials everywhere. And remember, writers, this week as you go through your business, bring your experience on your passions and sit it down and drop it on the page. Sit down and simply write. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an electric cast production. Electric acid. Electric acid.